This is season eight of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm D.L. Mayfield. I'm Crispin Mayfield. And this season we're talking about the thorniest, maybe horniest subject we've ever done. Christian romance. Are you ready, Crispin? I don't think I am, but here we go. Welcome back to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. This is the second interview of the season we're going to do today. But first, I wanted to mention that just last night, we had a Patreon-only event where we watched the Jesus Music documentary and chatted along. It was really fun. It was really great to see, um, not your faces, but to see those of you that were able to be with us. It was really fun to watch a terrible documentary. It was a wild ride, but I was glad I was on it with other people, I guess, um, <laughs> live chatting that experience. I was so glad because I went to see it without you. Yes. And, you know, you we, saw the theaters. Right. And I really was like, I do want Danielle to watch this with me. And I so. think my favorite thing we discovered was that Stephen Curtis Chapman basically admitted he was very attracted to Michael W. Smith. <laughs> yes, remember? I do that remember that. Point. And then I had to go because family stuff, but you said there's something at the end credits. Yes. I did not realize that after all the credits roll. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Carmen, there's a clip of a Carmen music video. Okay, because there's some serious Carmen erasure in this documentary, yes, obviously. Yes, it's very, very brief. And, I mean, And so then Carmen just shows up at the end with one of his music video clips, right? Yes, right, of him shooting the devil as a cowboy. R.I.P. From The Witch's Invitation, right? That's the one that we did a lip sync to. I know we did. Really that was even back. before TikTok. That was before TikTok. I mean, TikTok existed. We didn't know about it. We'll put a clip of... We'll we'll show that clip in the show notes yeah. to me and you. Uh-huh. You were Satan. I was Carmen. Right. Um, so we'll put that in there. So we're in the midst of the Christian romance season. I'm very excited to start rolling out some of these interviews. Um, do you notice anything different about my voice, Crispin? Yeah. You sound a little under the weather. I know, guys. I'm a professional podcaster because... I have COVID and I'm here podcasting. So just trying to wrap my brain around that, um, staying safe. You know, basically, we are agoraphobes anyway, so not going to spread this thing around. But if my voice sounds annoying, blame COVID. I love to blame COVID for many, many things and our government's response to it. So anywho, okay, today we're going to talk about an author named Jeanette Oak. And I'm not sure how many people know about Jeanette Oak. So my interview is with Daniel Silliman, who's been on the pod before, and he wrote a book on like these five evangelical novels that change Christian publishing. And the first one is Love Comes Softly by Jeanette Oak, which was published in 1979. And we get into it in the interview about why that time period was important, why Jeanette Oak and her Christian pioneer romances you know, we're sort of like a pendulum swing to some stuff going on in romance reading in general. But Crispin. I think it's worth mentioning the other books he tackles in his book to give sort of a context for what. What these influential books are. Yeah. Like, okay. you know, what is Love Comes Softly sort of compared to in terms of its influence, right? Because it's Love Comes uh-huh. Softly, This Present Darkness, uh-huh. which is why we talked to him before on our podcast, 
Beverly Lewis's The Shunning. Yep, Amish. The first big Amish inspirational fiction book. Uh-huh. And Paul Young's uh, book. The Shack. The Shack. That's Thank the last you. one. You missed someone. You missed and one in there. Left Behind. And what's funny is we've already done an entire season on Frank Peretti mm-hmm. in his book, This Present Darkness. And I'm going to be talking about The Shunning later on in this series. We're never going to talk about The Shack, uh, right? I feel like now we should mention that Paul Young came over for Easter. I remember The Shack came out. It was starting to get some ground. Yeah. Your mom emailed him and uh-huh. was like, I love this book. And then he came over for Easter that year. Yeah, they became friends with my parents. So my mom would bought like cases of his book and hand it out mm-hmm. to people. I mean, she's probably the reason it got so popular. Anyways, and we're never going to touch Left Behind, as I've said right. multiple times, because... Um, triggering for me growing up in household yeah end that times was like end times religious is trauma is a real thing it's a real thing so i'm not gonna touch that right now maybe when i'm all nice and like a completely healthy person right we'll do and we have behind. nothing going on in our life yeah that'd be and, so great dive mm-hmm. back into end time stuff so today we're talking about Jeanette oak which is probably like the least well known out of all those books is mm-hmm. what i'm assuming yeah right? i hadn't heard of it you've never heard of Jeanette oak no or love comes softly no, you mentioned Love Comes Softly, but, you know, it kind of sounded more sexual than anything. Good job. I told Crispin <laughs> he needed to make a note that we have to make some sexy puns because that's what the listeners demand. And yet <laughs> it went over both of our heads. It never crossed my mind that this title. But yeah, I guess I guess you could take that as a sexual pun. Me and Crispin are very bad at those, so. Feel free to send us some if you hear us. I guess we talk a lot about happy endings in romance novels and people were like, that's also a sexual pun. Um, This is all going to go over my head because I'm autistic. I don't know what your excuse is, Crispin, but I'm fine with it. I'm married to you. It's just not our jam and that's okay. But you guys keep sending them to us, okay? So... Yeah, me and Daniel didn't really talk about it, but Love Comes Softly was the first book Jeanette Oak wrote. Let me give you her background. Jeanette Oak was born, like, in the prairies of Canada in the Great Depression. She was literally, like, born at home in a log cabin, went to a one-room schoolhouse, and she's really used this um, background to say, like, I have authority to write about the pioneer times in Canada in particular. You know, obviously there's just this like overall romanticization of pioneer and settler narratives. And she sort of is like, yeah, and I get to do this because this is my past. And she can trace her lineage to like the 1700s. Like her ancestors came to Pennsylvania first and then uh, got land up in Canada. So like this is her background. The first book she wrote, Love Comes Softly, she says is because um, she was just sort of like imagining what it would be like, you know, to be a settler. Like if one of your spouse dies, like what do you do as a young woman? And so Love Comes Softly is about a woman named Marty whose husband dies as she's like doing the covered wagon trail, Mm -hmm. you know, and she ends up being like stranded in this town because she has a dead husband and she's like pregnant and so this guy comes to her and he's like hey like I lost my wife last year and I have a two-year-old and my two-year-old really needs a mom like seems like this could be mutually beneficial so it's like the marriage of convenience trope right which is very popular in romance as a genre I love it I kind of love it you know the marriage (laughs) of convenience very good for Christians right where like only romance and stuff needs to happen like within 
marriage, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's where this is. And so they get married first? Yes. Oh, okay. Like, right away. Okay. You know, like, yeah, yeah, the first, right. second chapter of the book. And then the rest of the book is just her figuring out, like, how to be a farm wife. And then she has her baby. The guy, Clark, is really nice to her. And at the very end, like, they're in love. And then I guess the rest of the series goes on. I read this. I read these books a bunch when I was a kid because they were in the church library, right? And that's a very common thing you'll hear throughout this entire series is, like, people being like, oh, I got these books from the church library. I thought that was really astute that, yeah, it's sold however, you know, a million mm-hmm. copies. Mm-hmm. But you are you have to assume that a large portion of those copies are sitting in a church library that are read by several of the women in a church. Yeah, the cultural impact is a lot more than one million copies, but it's still astonishing that this book sold a million copies because it's not really well written, the dialogue's atrocious, all that stuff. So, I mean, that's the plot summary of the book, but what I wanted to talk about really quick before we get to the interview is that Jeanette Oak is probably more well-known currently because something she wrote... In 1983, another series she wrote. So the Love Comes Softly series was like her first series. But then she's she's very prolific. She wrote tons of books. And then she did the Canadian West series. The first one in that series is When Calls the Heart. And so that's probably more well-known to people because that has been a movie, a few movies, I believe. I've never watched them. But then it became a show on the Hallmark Channel, which makes a lot of sense. These books are very Hallmark-y. And the Canadian West series, When Calls the Heart, it's like all about the Royal Mounties in that <laughs> the main character, Elizabeth like ends up falling in love with a Mountie. Do you know what a Mountie is? No, not really. I, I mean, do because I read these books as a tween. Is it like the Canadian version of like the wild West sheriff? Yes, but it's like Dudley do right. Wears a red jacket mm-hmm. and they're always on a horse. Okay. And it's so funny. It's like Do-Right. in the cultural imagination, like Mounties are seen as, positive good like forces of calm like all this stuff so the canadian version of it wild west sheriff <laughs> in the, the sense of the... like i feel like that's very canadian to be like the law enforcement is like a, a presence of calm rather than like a presence of like vengeance or or no, wrath that, okay so here's the deal i got when calls the heart on Kindle, and I was reading, here's the preface to the book, okay? okay? This is the preface. This is what Jeanette Oak says. She says, I would like to supply my readers with a few facts concerning the Northwest Mounted Police. The force was founded in 1873 as an answer to the problem of illicit liquor trade and lawlessness in the West. It has been said that the Mountie was dressed in a red coat to readily set him apart from the U.S. cavalry. So, setting up this dichotomy that, like, the U.S. sort of, like, police force, maybe not great, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. The Mountie was, okay. The Mountie's job was to make peace with the Indians, not to defeat them. And many of the Indian tribes which he had to deal with had already had run-ins with the troops from south of the border. Okay. So this is saying like... Oak throwing some shade at the U.S. Some well-earned shade. But here's the thing. They were not great. Like they did like terrorize... Indigenous people, like I am not surprised. So, so here's what she says later on. She she keeps talking about the Mounties, and then she says, "Although I try not to be too sentimental when I think of the Mounties and their part in the development of the Canadian West, to me they are a living symbol of my Canadian homeland." Okay, so I'm like, what? Like now I'm freaking out, Crispin. Now I'm just freaking out because these books that she wrote in 1983. Three that are now like extremely popular Hallmark uh-huh. Channel 
television shows. Like, this show was on Netflix. That's how I watched it. But mm-hmm. I just looked it up and... This year in 2022, right, happening right now, mm-hmm. the ninth season of When Calls a Heart, which again is focused on a town of settlers mm-hmm. in the mounted police force, right, um, was the most watched scripted like TV show on cable. Like that's how popular what? it is. And like the people who love it are called the Hardies when oh calls the heart. Gosh. They call uh-huh. themselves Hardies. Like they're so into it. And it's like this absolute romanticization of the police. Like, well, isn't that say, fascinating? I, for, for one, I was going to say, like, it is not shocking at all that a white woman who wrote romance in the 70s uh-huh. is pro-police. But uh-huh. it is shocking that that is the most watched show on cable. Right. And the romanticization for, of that, right? Yeah. And so, so this is another thing that Jeanette Oak said in an interview to um, the Dove Awards. Okay. Mm-hmm. She said, she was talking about her like being in Canada, right? So she says, our Canadian West opened up quite a bit different than the stories I was reading, which were basically Westerns from the U.S. side of the border, okay? Um, And that we had the Northwest Mounted Police and they basically preceded the settlers. So we never had the cowboy and Indian skirmishes and the unsettled West for them to come to. We never had sheriffs in Canada. We had the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And so our pioneers came out to a rather settled area as far as the laws were concerned. Okay, so it's basically like, Again, this idea that like Canada was different than the U.S., mm-hmm. not racist. There was no cowboys and Indian skirmishes. The Royal Mounted Police just made it safe for everybody to come. But safe from what? Right. Like uh, it, 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 it basically sounds like they like pre-colonized it. Yes. And so uh, there's definitely been a few things floating about right now because the show is so popular. Right. There are some. Ar- articles about like uh maybe we should stop romanticizing the mounties right (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so that's good to see a little bit of that but there's not enough it's not enough for like how important it is so if you look up like the truth and reconciliation like committees of canada which have Mm -hmm. been in the news because there's been some horrible findings right at indian boarding schools and all this stuff of of bodies of kids right who had died and been buried Mm -hmm. in these indian residential schools and canada had indian residential schools just like the u.s did Mm -hmm. and guess who in forced mandatory attendance for children at the Indian boarding schools. Of course. The The Mounties. And so you can look up all these reports, right? Like their role in the residential school system and like enforcing mandatory attendance. So it's just like, I am now just freaking out about this stuff. Okay. Jeanette Oak, I was like, she's a kindly old lady just running out of her space. And I'm like, of course, romanticizing the pioneer narratives is beyond toxic. It's mm-hmm. just beyond toxic. So I just found all this stuff. So I'm not like that intense in the interview with Daniel, but I just had to throw it out there. Uh-huh. This is what we're talking about. This is right. very complicated stuff and it has far reaching consequences. Yeah. And it really gets in the way of actually reckoning with our past and where we're at. Exactly. So it's a ro- it's like a forced marriage romance story. The when calls the heart one is more just like, you know, lady goes off to a new place, ends up falling in love with a Mountie kind of thing. But You know, these are also the stories of what white women love about telling what what white women love telling themselves about their histories. Mm. Right. And so Jeanette Oak is doing it in from the context of I'm Canadian. We're not that racist. We're not bad. Um, And that's kind of like kept her from criticism in my book is because she's not from the U.S. and she's not talking about the U.S. stuff where we have a much more robust like 
level of criticism. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Don't you think sometimes Canadians are like, we're not that bad? Yeah. I'm sorry. I know we have a lot of Canadian listeners. Right, Maybe I'm do. like ruining Jeanette Oak for you, but I want to hear you guys weigh in and we'll put in all the show notes, like um, some of these uh, like studies and stuff that the, what is it called? The Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Right. I would guess that a lot of people that are familiar with Canada would be like, yeah, it's not that great. I feel like having a Truth and Reconciliation Committee is one step beyond the beyond US. America. Oh, yeah. So I'm not, uh, yeah. So, But it does not take a lot to be one step above the U.S. Yeah. So Jeanette Oak has sold millions of books and now there's television shows that, you know, re- this spring just have millions of viewers watching every premiere. You know, mm-hmm. it's just wild. So that's why we're studying this. Nobody talks about it. Nobody said, but Jeanette Oak, if you're listening, we're coming for you, sweetie. <laughs> we're coming for you. I sincerely hope you write something about the Mounties and their role in oppressing and terrorizing indigenous people. Anyways, on to the interview. You know, I already got you on here to talk about this present darkness. Today, we're going to talk about Jeanette Oak. And I'm so excited because who else can I get to talk to me about this book? Daniel. Daniel, this book uh, was published in 1979. I read it in the early 90s from a church library and um i bet that's how a lot of other people read it um church libraries used to be a thing i didn't i couldn't find if you wrote about that in your book actually but um to me that seems a way where this these kinds of books get passed from person to person to person that's another hallmark so they've been read by way more than a million people right because they get passed around the church they get passed in community here's the deal i'm gonna just put my cards out there I reread Love Comes Softly by Jeanette Oak in a day, and I loved it, Daniel. I loved it. I'm so shocked. And maybe this is just because it is so much better than Redeeming Love, and I had my bar set so low. Uh I was like, Jeanette Oak, like her female character, has agency. Yes. And basically the book is about a person who had terrible things happen to them who eventually is won over by the love of a very kind man. And like, that's it. He's very kind. Of course, there's so much benevolent patriarchy. We will get into all that. But from just from my perspective, I was just like, this is about a very kind man. And I love that. It was, it's a very sweet, very simple story, all that. So I just want to put my cards on the table. Yeah. It's a novel that really acknowledges how life can be a struggle. And then suggests that you can get through it with faith. That's the core of the story. But I think a lot of readers, the readers who've liked it, find it reassuring. And it's not escapist in the sense of like denying real struggles um, or denying that life is just hard. But it is reassuring in the sense that um, the woman has agency and she finds faith and that's what empowers her to get through the difficult things in her life and can help can work for you too and and to contrast it with redeeming love again it's just that the main character marty is never seen as like a horrible person right she's just struggling and she has some pretty normal reactions to the grief she's experienced and she is 
yeah, yeah she's like kind of grumpy but it's like yeah her husband died like of course she's yeah. grumpy and but she's at so redeeming love is all about like this soiled dove this per, this woman who just is always choosing sin and that's not marty at all and it, i just i just liked it that you can identify with this female character you know who's just probably more like you and how you feel about yourself which is like yeah some bad things have happened it'd be nice if somebody you know was kind to me so i'm like i'm reading this during a pandemic still right i'm sure these are the kind of books people would go to because you do get to live out that romance fantasy through somebody else which is something good will happen to her at the end you know and you'll feel so happy for her because she's gone through so much bad stuff but again the bad stuff is different than the redeeming love bad stuff and i think that's probably why it impacted me not as negatively one significant difference between these two books is that Francine Rivers was a professional romance novelist before she had a religious experience. So she's bringing in the genre and the skills of being a genre writer in a way that um, Jeanette Oak is is not. I mean, I think literarily there are some things with Jeanette Oak that kind of don't make sense. Like, that's not how you structure a novel. There's some amateurish elements to it that you would never find in Francine Rivers, right? Francine Rivers is a woman who knows her craft. But Jeanette Oak was also reacting to a lot of horrible stuff that was happening in the broader romance genre. And sometimes you'll hear people dismiss it as like these women just wanted to be safe from sex and hearing about sex. But romance novels in the 1970s weren't just like acknowledging the existence of sex. They were telling stories about rape and how... If you love your rapist, you can have a relationship with him and it live happily ever after because your love over your love overcomes all, including, you know, violent men. So I actually think that in context, the reaction of Christian novelists like Jeanette Oak makes more sense than people generally get it, give it credit for. And I don't know that that Francine Rivers, at least with Redeeming Love, was as different from the rest of the world genre as many of these other writers were in the 70s and 80s. She's in rural Canada. There wasn't a bookstore in the town that she lived in. She's buying romance novels from the grocery store in Calgary, which was a very normal thing in the 70s that I don't know any adult who buys their novels from a grocery store these days, but this is a very normal thing at the time. But yeah, she's in very rural Didsbury, Alberta. Yeah. And I'm like, I remember being a kid and seeing like romance novels for sale at the grocery store. And that was like a really helpful way for me to reframe like, yeah, in the 70s, you know, in the late 60s, like there weren't bookstores, there weren't Christian bookstores, you read what was available to you and what was available to women, you know, were these books at the grocery store, which did often contain these elements, right, of, I would say sexual violence, you know, being seen as titillating. And so I, I think it's I think you're totally right to say people want different things besides that. But Jeanette Oak also had some theological stuff going into her novel. And you get into her history a little bit, which really broke my heart, you know, to hear she had a miscarriage. And then she gave birth to a child who died, you know, a couple hours after being born and just how her faith was sort of crystallized. And that reminded me of when we talked about Frank Peretti's book, you had brought up Amy Grant and Amy Grant loving Frank Peretti's book because it gave her some agency in her own spiritual life. 
life and their own horrible things happening in her life. You didn't say in your book if there was specific like Christian fiction that Jeanette Oak went to in these times of grief for her. It almost seems like she wrote the first book, right, to help women deal with this stuff. So it's not quite the first book. There are novels that um, evangelical publishers had tried to produce, but they kind of just weren't successful. I think Oak wrote the book that she needed. I think she wrote the one that she that she would have wanted as she was going through those really trying really trying struggles. And it was also the first love come softly became the first book in that it convinced all the publishers all at once that, that Christian romance was uh, going to be really popular and was a good idea. Love come softly comes out in 79 by like 86. Everybody has one or two or a dozen Christian romance novels. Um, they're all set in the West. They're all kind of prairie. They're not. They're not knockoffs of Jeanette Oak, but it's like she invented a genre at this moment. She invented a genre, and I think that's really fascinating, especially thinking about the time period and what the setting was. So, you know, everybody loves to think about why certain books, you know, get popular, like Amish romance, all that. So I want to ask you, why do you think Jeanette Oak's book, Love Comes Softly, about a woman who's experienced a ton of hardship on the prairie, you know, falls in love? And it's a pretty common romance trope, a marriage of convenience. Why did it explode the way it did? The normal way to approach these things for historians has been to talk about a psychological need, a sort of mass psychological need. I've benefited from going the other direction and thinking about the material conditions and the networks that existed. If you take that approach, Jeanette Oak got very lucky at producing a book at exactly the moment when Christian bookstores were ready for this kind of book. So Christian bookstores organized for the very first time in the 1950s, uh, in 1950, and they primarily are selling to pastors and church supplies and theology books and maybe some Sunday school curriculum. And in the mid-70s, um, partly through a white flight and the growth of the suburbs and then uh, uh, an expansion of credits. There are all these new Christian bookstores going up in strip malls all around the country, and they realize that for every pastor, there is 100, 200, maybe more book buyers who are not being served. So there's this dramatic shift from publisher-serving ministers to publisher-serving lay audiences. And at the same time, and I talk about this in the book, there's a shift from denominational publishing to evangelical, so a broader trans-denominational. So there's a lot of incentives not to talk about anything that will divide your audience. And what all of these people in the suburbs in evangelicalism have in common is families. So the idea, believe in Jesus, read the Bible, follow the Bible and you'll have the best life and you'll have um, a good family and you'll flourish in your community um, becomes like the central theme, the central message of the Christian bookstore. That's also Jeanette Oak's message, right? With her own theology of suffering and her own understanding of flourishing and her, her story of, of love and her story of letting go and letting God fits exactly that idea that becomes possible and becomes distributed because of the Christian bookstore. 
Interesting, because I think I not really considered that because I grew up in this world and that's what I grew up reading. It didn't cross my mind that maybe other romance novels, other works of fiction, you know, were not really centered on the pinnacle of experiencing and a flourishing life is to be married and have children. So children are always a part of Christian romance, you know, which is fascinating. And I bet that's not a part of all um secular romance. Now, I have a theory, and you can tell me what you think about this. And I was like a sheltered homeschool kid, so I didn't get to read a ton. Um, but my family was really into Little House on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder, and then Jeanette Oak was like the bridge, right, to other reading for me. It's like, I probably read it when I was like 11, 12, maybe younger. And it's a lot like... The- <laughs> Laura Ingalls, like so much discussion about chores and so much um, all of this stuff, but a tiny bit more um, self-aware. And then also, of course, uh, just slightly less authentic because I, we haven't discussed it yet, but the the dialogue yeah. in Love Comes Softly is so bad. It's it's She invents her own dialect. Why? Why did she do that? I don't know. I have not found any explanation, but yeah. She does. <laughs> she does. It's kind of um, fake Southern. Some of it feels like imaginary Southerners on TV or something there, but it's not, it's not Southern. It's this, I don't know. Okay. It's I have lots of furs and yours and, and B the verbs are all wrong. All the to be verbs are all wrong. It's, it's yeah. It's a very strange set of choices that she made. So I am going to be talking to other people about the Amish romance books because they also have their own, you know, language yeah. to them. But I wanted to read just a, just a snippet of some of the covers, like some of the things that Marty in particular yeah. says or thinks in the books. So I'm going to read it just so our listeners can get, um, you know, wrap their head around this. I might do a terrible job because I don't know how to do this. But here, here we go. There's a lot to talk about her needing to make her husband coffee and do all the chores perfectly right blah 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 so she says he be looking cold all right yeah be the one that be needing it yeah be chilling yourself for sure working out in that wretched wind and all lucky you be if and you don't be a putting yourself down over it come yes better be drinking this while it be hot and i'm just like what is happening that's just what it is over <laughs> yeah sometimes it sounds like a fake minnesota mixed with like your beat but what's the that that you be that one they're, i just they're can't. all bees no one ever is anything everyone always be things yeah i don't know what's happening with that i do think that i do think uh just dialects yeah writing in dialect used to be seen as interesting <laughs> it was much more widespread yeah it's, it's, it's weird it's, it's hard to read it's, it's hard to read it's, i do think i do think you're right that the the prairiness helps with the popularity i mean she's pulling she's pulling from this fantasy space that most americans have like most americans have um the shared fantasy of the west and she's you know, establishes that pretty quickly and then is able to play in that space in a way that's both like really familiar to, to us culturally and that um, draws us in, I think. Yeah. And I think that is kind of a hard thing to parse out again, because I was so steeped in it, but um, 
I yeah, there is a preface to my version of of Love Comes Softly, and it's written by Jenna Oak, and she says this is the first sentence right in this book. It says the life of the pioneer holds much appeal for present day Americans, and well, it should, for it is to these strong, courageous people that we owe so much of our heritage. That's a hard sentence to read in um, twenty twenty two when white Christian nationalists are. Um, you know, trying are literally banning history books, right? Or books that deal with history that doesn't line up with Jeanette Oak's vision of, of history. Yeah. To me, that's very coded language for, I wrote an imaginative novel about uh, manifest destiny, right? And so she said, because of my interest in the past and my respect for our forefathers, I chose as a setting for my novel, the period of the pioneers. And, uh, you know, there's obviously been such a popular setting for the white imagination i was expecting it to be a little bit more overtly racist like the laura ingles books frankly are but um she bypasses most of that so that's what's also fascinating it's like Jeanette oak is less racist than laura ingles i'm not sure that's like well at least that she she is definitely imagining a prairie that's that's empty of indigenous people where Laura Ingalls Wilder has these vestiges of conflict between white settlers and indigenous people. However, I'm not sure that Laura Ingalls was so explicit in stating that um, if you're a pioneer, right, and your farm is going good, which Marty's husband, Clark, his farm is, is doing really well. And he straight up tells her it's because God gave me this land and has blessed this land, you know? And so that's pretty insidious and, and terrible. And honestly, what most white evangelicals truly believe. And so um, in some ways it is worse, right? Because this novel just takes that as, of course, everybody knows, like God gave us this land. There's nothing else out here. It's ours. He's blessing it, yeah. which is also kind of hard because this book is a prosperity gospel and it's not right because interpersonally terrible things happen clark's wife died even though he prayed for her Um, you know all this stuff but then i think more structurally or just culturally and the land itself is a prosperity gospel approach yeah her specific is called higher life theology or keswick theology it doesn't say that if you have faith, you will have wealth. So it's not prosperity gospel in that literal sense. But it does say that you should trust God. <laughs> and if you trust God, you'll see the benefit and you'll discover the best version of your life through that, which might include hardship. It might even include poverty. But um, the goal is still your flourishing. So Charles Taylor talks about this in the in the in the imminent frame of secularity that the highest possible goal for religion is your well-being and it might be your community's well-being or it might be your individual well-being but there's certainly no end of faith or no end of god's purposes that's beyond um you doing well we see that pretty clearly in this novel one of the tensions in the book is that Marty is not a Christian. She doesn't really have very much knowledge. And so the benevolent patriarchy stuff really comes up a lot because Clark you know, reads the Bible. He reads out loud. Like Marty's learning the Bible from him. Um, he takes her to church. She hears that Jesus died for her sins. And Marty is always like, is Clark's God real? Can I believe in Clark's God? And you point out like, that's actually really accurate. In the book, Clark basically owns God. Like God does for Clark what Clark needs. And he has a simple 
faith in him. And I was like, man, if that isn't the benevolent patriarchy, to be happy, a woman needs to believe in her man's God, right? And I think that really depressed me. So that took out some of the good feelings I had while reading this book, Daniel. That that stood out to me, especially when you contrast it with Oak's own life, which also goes to the question of heritage. There's a sort of complicating piece with the heritage in that the missionary church, which were these were um, Mennonites who embraced revivalism and kind of split from the other Anabaptists. Out on the prairie in Canada, they decided that um, women should be ministers and that and there were a whole bunch of women who felt called to the ministry. And so they went west to the space in which it was allowed and took over these saloons and turned them into churches. And um, yeah, I love that stuff, man. I love and these it. Are the, and these are, they ran the summer camp where Jeanette Oak became a Christian. Like mm-hmm. she didn't come from a Christian family and she, you know, went down the aisle in this like very classic evangelical way, but it's all run by women specifically because they're on the prairie. So that makes it, that's a weird story. That's not your, your typical understanding of the, the cowboy on the prairie. It's like missionary woman on the prairie in her own life. So her, her whole family converts with her when she's a child, except for her father. The only male Christian in her own biography ends up being her husband and he becomes a minister. She never describes like sitting in a church service with men being in charge. It doesn't seem at all like a male dominated religion as she actually experienced it, at least from, from the biographical accounts that I can find. But then when she's imagining a character like her coming to faith, it's through a strong, kind man who demonstrates God and very much models God for her, right? He wants the best for her. He loves her. He doesn't want to manipulate her. That's what makes him so, so kind. That gets really complicated for me when you start trying to parse out um, how, how it works in the novel and how she's imagining it working versus how it actually worked in her life, which wasn't quite as patriarchal as I would have expected. Yeah. And it's interesting because just growing up female in these environments, like I have seen the aftermath of this kind of like romanticization of like the male doing devotions, being a man of God, leading his wife, you know, to understand the scriptures. I I read the book and I was like, does Marty even know how to read? Because she could very well be illiterate because she, (laughs) but I think it says she did pick up the Bible at one point to try and read it. But But mostly it's him reading it. Yeah. And it's presenting a a picture of male piety, which is benevolently patriarchal without being violent or authoritarian or aggressive. Which is is unfortunately Um, such a relief. Like, you know, I'm like, I also spent a lot of time trying to wrestle with like how much of this faith is individual versus social. I mean, there's some ways in which it's in which the characters, her Christianity leads to flourishing and it's kind of just her flourishing, right? It's kind of, it's not bound up with loving her neighbors or, or it is, but only in this like very distinct after effect kind of way. But on the other hand, it is very social, but all tied up in the family, you know, and there's not a picture of like, because we're Christians, we have a new kind of family or a new conception of what it means to have uh, a family in a sort of New Testament 
Pauline church kind of way. Instead, it's just that we have the best version of a family, you know, and, 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 um, the prairie that she's imagining is very suburban and it's very organized around, around atomic families in a way that historically actually wasn't quite like that. Oh, uh, are you telling me this book is not historically accurate? I know, I know that I was wasn't the that we were going in for, <laughs> but it is interesting that like the fantasy of the prairie at moments is really a fantasy of suburbia <gasps> and the, wow. And the individualist faith, which I think gets criticized a lot, and rightly so, it's interesting when the individualist faith turns out to be a kind of family faith. And it turns out to be, it is social, it is communal, but only in this very distinct uh, family values kind of a way. I like that you do draw that out, though, in your book. If millions of people are reading these books about a Jesus that is only very personal and only about their flourishing, yeah, there's going to be some, you know, implications. I wanted to bring up one thing, too, is because when Jeanette Oak wrote this novel, she tried to get it published, send it off to some people. They're like, no, we're not going to publish it. And there was a female editor, right, at Bethany House, Carol Johnson. And you mentioned this in the book, so I'm assuming that most editors at this time were male. Just in general, yeah. In Christian publishing as well, but yeah, just in general. So now we have a woman editor who's like, I like this book. She convinces Bethany House to publish it. Did you notice the other place that Carol Johnson shows up in my book? Where? She's also the publisher who um, accepts Beverly Lewis's The Shunning and invents, invents Amish romances as another. Can you say her name again? Carol Johnson. Carol Johnson, you She's started so a revolution. Significance so. in the history and basically unknown. Like there's very little out there about her. But yeah, she, she played a pivotal role in two of the most significant Christian novels wow. that really shaped a lot of specifically like ideas of feminine piety for sure. And that's the fascinating thing when, when researching Christian romance, you know, I, I guess I had in my mind what I'm going to talk about and this is not what I'm okay. ever imagined. And I love that. It's like, there is actually a woman mm-hmm. who allowed these books to be published, who has impacted millions and millions of people. And yeah. Like, that's fascinating. That's an untold story. So thank you for bringing that up. I also think it's fascinating that the Mennonites are strangely a part of these stories, right? Mm -hmm. Of publishing, of these narratives. And it's just fascinating because of the ways these novels diverge greatly from the reality of what it's like to be Mennonite in the prairie. So Yeah. I mean, I could definitely talk more about Oak, but I think it might be helpful to zoom out and remind listeners that... One of the really interesting things about novels and thinking about novels is how they don't control readers. <laughs> they don't force readers. They invite readers. Um, in some ways, all of these novels are about belief and what it's like to believe. But because they're fiction, they're also just inviting you to suspend disbelief. So it's this very gentle invitation to be imaginative and to engage some ideas. But readers did a lot of different things with them. You know, you can easily have read all of these books as a kid and come away with just the idea that, like, God loves me and the prairie seems cool. I think it can be tempting when parsing romance novels to come up with, like, really strong ideas about what they did to people. Mm -hmm. Um, And people are more free... (laughs) and creative than a lot of times we give them credit for. I especially think critics 
and we can all watch for this in ourselves. Critics have a tendency to dismiss female readers, too, mm-hmm. as if they don't have any rational faculties, and they're all carried away by their emotions of the romance and sweep them into some theological positions that they couldn't have avoided because they were overcome by the novels. And that's just not a great way to think about it. They're, they're, They're weirder and more interesting and people are freer and more complicated. Yeah, and I, I think you're so right. And it's such a, a tightrope, I feel like, walking sometimes because I don't want to denigrate women and their reading habits and what they love and what they're drawn to. At the same time, I think it is very okay to uh, critique it, to uh, look at it with curiosity. And uh, there's still some questions. There's still some questions I have in my mind, especially this confluence of reading romance as devotional material that I still can't wrap my head around. But, well, maybe we'll get there, Daniel. Maybe we won't. (laughs) But, you know, it's a part of my history. It's a part of a lot of people's history that just hasn't been talked about enough. So thank you so much for writing this book. I hope, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, if you've sat through our entire season on Frank Peretti's book, (laughs) This Prison Darkness, if you are currently listening to this season on Christian Romance, there's a very good chance you will love Daniel's book. It's called Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. And Daniel, I don't think I can do it. I don't think we're going to be talking about the shack ever on this podcast. And I don't think we're ever going to talk about the Left Behind series, but that's only because that is too real for me. That is too triggering. And I'll just be honest about that. That's fair. But, uh, you know, I, I'm going to talk about uh, the shunning with somebody else. We're talking about Jeanette Oak and we already talked to you about this presentation. So I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Um, but you're just a lovely guest and a lovely repeat guest to have. So thank uh, you so much it's for coming on. To talk to you. It's nice. It's nice to, it's nice to talk to someone who just intuitively takes the stuff as seriously as I do and you're willing to critique it, but you're also willing to treat everyone as like fully rounded people who are reading this stuff. And that's great. It's fun to come on. And that's what you did. Again, I felt so glad just to read and just like the way you approach it. It's very complex, very complicated. I was I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you on social medias or anything? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm very findable on Twitter um, at Daniel Silliman. I'm also the news editor at Christian Today. So a lot of the day-to-day writing that I'm doing is news reporting, and you can find that on ChristianToday.com. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and send us emails at propheticimaginationstation at gmail.com. You can join our Patreon community for as little as $1.50 a month for more discussions of evangelical media and the occasional virtual hangout. You can find show notes and transcription of this episode at our website, propheticimaginationstation.com. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes. And lastly, between the two of us, we've written a few books. You can find Danielle's latest book, Myth of the American Dream, and Crispin's book, Attached to God, wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening.